it ain't necessarily so. So as Karen has already said, this is our third week. Uh, We start each calendar year with the A, B, C, D of discipleship, so you will have worked out that D is still to come next week. And you will remember, but you know, I'm married to someone who has a background as a school teacher, so let's do the educational thing and repeat it. So A is for assume that God wants to use you. B, believe that he is bigger. And today, C, cultivate intimacy with God. And I have to say, it's a a concept and a passage that I approached with some trepidation, feeling relatively poorly qualified to speak on this. So there's my disclaimer right up at the beginning. I've been pondering about this really for probably two or three weeks now and looking at the passage, which is from Revelation, this is a first for me, I haven't preached from the book of Revelation before, and it dawned on me as I was sitting at work that what, in fact, this passage that we'll come to in a minute is dealing with is kind of like a checkup. And suddenly I felt much happier because, hey, that's core business for me, isn't it? I'm a GP. People come to me for a checkup. Now, you can probably guess what the typical patient who comes into me and says, I want a checkup is like. There's a few of you sitting here in this building. The typical such patient would be a gentleman of a certain age, somewhat like me, a, a middle aged man. Um, it's usually a long time since this man has been to the doctor. And there's a pretty fair chance that. Yes, he chose to come here, but actually someone else was behind his coming here. And I think, yes, those someone else's know who they are. Okay. So for whatever reason, the man is here with a checkup, and it's a long time since he's been here, and he might even have a long piece of paper, certainly in his mind, there is a long list. And the other thing that I know for sure and certain is that this person will have booked into a very short appointment, and I know I'm not going to catch him again for another five or ten years, and there's a long list. So right away it's like, oh here we go, what are we going to do here? So there's always the issue when someone asks you for a checkup. well, what is it that we're going to have a look at? What are we going to check? What you know, actually brings value? What is worth doing in this particular consultation? And, you know, when we're teaching our medical students, we teach them a, a very simple approach. We tell them first up to have a listen to what the person is saying. Uh, as one very wise older doctor once said, the patient will tell you what is wrong with him if only you will let him. So we have a listen. Having had a listen, we then have a look. We, uh, we examine. Maybe we do tests, you know, either you know, checking your blood pressure, measuring your weight, whatever it else. Maybe we even send you off for a blood test or some sort of imaging or scan. Because we know, and I think this is widely appreciated, that someone may come in looking perfectly well to the outside eye, But actually, if we look more closely, we may find that there are signs of something rather serious or important going on, maybe even something serious or important already happening. And many a checkup has resulted in the unearthing of things which are really quite critical, which were previously not known to the doctor or to the patient. So even if the person feels well, even if to the casual observer, everything seems to be going absolutely fine. In fact, there may be significant things happening under the surface. And so when I see somebody, I suppose one of the things I'm thinking is, well, what do I need to take particular care in examining in this person? What appropriate diagnostic tests might I need to do in order to reveal issues that would otherwise have been invisible and to actually do some good for this person? And in fact, there's a very real sense in which the passage we're about to have a look at in Revelation is a series of checkups 
So I suppose Dr. Jesus had seven different churches that he felt the need to administer a checkup to, and we're going to look at just one of them today. I just want to very quickly give you a, a, a sketch, a view of the book of Revelation or, or where it's coming from, because I know that for some of us, this isn't a book that we encounter very often. So the book of Revelation was written by the Apostle John, we believe, the same John who wrote the Gospel of John, although by the time he wrote, wrote this, he was a very old man. And he'd actually been exiled, imprisoned for his faith on a small rocky island called Patmos. Now Patmos is about as far off the coast of Turkey as Kangaroo Island is off the coast of uh, South Australia and yet it was then and still is considered a part of Greece. But it wasn't the place that people went to for a holiday, it wasn't scenic. I don't think Barry and Kelly's uh, cruise liner will be calling there later this year. No, shaking the head. Okay. So it was a place, you know, not really of hard labour, but he was sent there to get him out of the way because he was a nuisance. He was viewed by the authorities as a troublemaker. So let's, let's isolate the guy. And of course, God knew what a beautiful thing that isolation could be. Because whilst John was there, whilst he was in exile, he received a series of visions which told him some very important things about the difficult times in which John lived because the church was suffering and was going to suffer a lot more, and also about the times to come. So one of the first things that Jesus revealed to John was his view, his checkup, if you will, of seven major churches of the day. And I think one of the reasons that that checkup has been recorded for us in the book of Revelation is that if you look at those seven churches, the truth of the matter is just about anybody in any church in any era can look at those and think, yeah, okay. I can see something of us in that. So obviously it was specifically relevant in detail for the church at the time, but it has a broader revelation, relevance for us today, uh, as indeed it has over the ages. The passage we're looking at was written to the church in Ephesus, which I believe is on the Littleford itinerary. Ephesus was a major city, uh, a big trading uh, port in its time. It's silted up, it's inland now. But in its day, it was a very important and prosperous city, the crossroads of many people and places. It was important in business, important in finance. It was a religious centre for the worship of the goddess Artemis. There was a great deal went on in that place. And so not surprisingly, God, knowing that, planted a very strategic church in the city of Ephesus. And uh, we enjoy good leadership here, but the city of Ephesus had had some particularly important leaders who'd been part of their church or actually served in oversight. So Paul himself, the Apostle Paul, spent perhaps the longest period of time in one town right there in Ephesus. There's another couple that bob up once or twice in Scripture called Priscilla and Aquila who were there. Timothy, as in the book of Timothy, is said to have been the first bishop of Ephesus. John himself, who wrote this book, actually spent many years there. It is believed that he probably died there in the end once he was released from Patmos. So this is a significant church in an important city that's had really high-quality leadership. I mean, you know, it doesn't get much better than Paul, Timothy, John, et al. And it is to this church that Jesus addresses his comments. John, the Apostle John, was the the vehicle, the medium through which the message came. But the diagnostic skills, the insight, the searching testing, that was all about Jesus. To use the checkup analogy, Jesus was the top specialist. He was the lab, he was the x-ray guy, all rolled into one. Jesus sees all, 
Jesus hears all, Jesus knows all, and it's his opinion that counts more than the opinion of the people already in the church, more than the opinion of those outside the church who might look in, more than the opinion of any other church. So Jesus is giving his searching opinion. Let's have the passage, if you would. To the messenger of the church in Ephesus write, write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, So we've been given imagery here, and I'm afraid there's lots of word pictures in Revelation. What the hearers would have clearly understood is this is Jesus. He says, I know what you have done. I know how hard you have worked and how you have endured. I also know that you cannot tolerate wicked people. You have tested those who call themselves apostles but are not apostles. You have discovered that they are liars. You have endured, suffered trouble because of my name and have not grown weary. However, I have this against you. The love you had at first is gone. Remember how far you have fallen. Return to me and change the way you think and act and do what you did at first. I will come to you and take your lampstand from its place if you don't change. But you have this in your favour. You hate what the Nicolaitans are doing. I also hate what they're doing. Let the person who has ears listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. And there's the hint. It's not just for them. It's for us. I will give the privilege of eating from the tree of life which stands in the paradise of God to everyone who wins the victory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we approach this unusual passage with its different imagery and language, we ask that you would open our eyes, open our minds, and most importantly of all, open our hearts to hear what it is that you are clearly saying to us today. Come now, Holy Spirit, bring the Father's message, the word of Jesus to us. Challenge us, encourage us, change, refresh, renew us. We ask this in your name. Amen. Okay, can we go back to the passage and skip on to the next? Thank you very much. Uh, Sorry, no, no, the next part of the passage. So I'm looking for around about verses 4 and 5, making your life difficult. I'll keep going. So the first thing is that Jesus says a number of positive things about the church. And, you know, we all like being told good things, don't we? So he begins by saying to them, you've endured, you've suffered trouble, and you've not grown weary. And then on the next part of the passage, actually, no, sorry, we'll flip back. We'll leave that one up there. Wouldn't we be glad if Jesus turned up at Parafield Gardens Uniting Church today? Well, he has, got news for you. But if he said to us, if he said to us these positive things, and the things he said, and preachers love things that come in three and start with the same letter, so here we go. Wouldn't we love it if he said that like the Ephesians, we were enthusiastic? 
that we were working hard, that we were doing good things and not growing tired, that we got the job done. Wouldn't we love it if Jesus said, Parafield Gardens Uniting Church, you have endured. You've had some tough times, but you've stuck at it. People have been critical. They've tried to deflect you from what I've told you to do, but you've kept on the path. Well done. Good job. Parafield Gardens Uniting Church, you are enlightened. You wouldn't tolerate rubbish. You've got a finely tuned nonsense meter or something rather like it. You're not being led astray. You are sticking with what you know to be true and you won't be diverted from that. These are good things that he's said. And further on he says another good thing. He says, you really don't like those Nicolaitans and I don't like them either and I don't like what they're doing. Well, we don't know too much about them, but just in case you're curious, we think that they were people who had a, a, a different set of lifestyle standards. So they encouraged promiscuity, perhaps were generally loose in their lifestyle, and that was a bad advert for the church. So the church at Ephesus was enthusiastic. It was enduring. It was enlightened. And wouldn't we just love it if, if Jesus turned up and said, well done, Parafield Gardens, that's true of you today. Of course... You know if you're in that sort of workplace setting where you sit down for the annual appraisal with your boss and he sits you down and says, OK, Simon, so this is a... I like da, da, da. You're just sitting there waiting for the next word, aren't you? And what's the next word? But, yes, or however, however, whichever way you will. So you know there is a but coming. And there it is, however, in this particular translation, I have this against you. So you know you're feeling good. Thing. OK, tick, 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 Bang. The love you had at first is gone. And this is where I, when I was reading this passage, I thought, oh boy, (laughs) I've got to speak on this. Because I'll be frank with you, I think it's really easy and it's certainly my own experience that that fire, that passion of the first love dies down. Things crowd in, things dull it, other things get in the way. That's true of me. I suspect I'm not alone in this. The love you have at first is gone. And it made me reflect, well, what does he mean by first love? Now, obviously, that's perhaps early on in their walk, in their relationship with God. But there's also a quality, a a novelty, a specialness, a unique nature of first love. And we know that as human beings, don't we? Because the truth is, Pretty much all of us have either experienced or seen close up first love, yeah? Hopefully that's something that we all know something about. And so as I reflected on first love, I thought, okay, well, what are the qualities of first love? What's different about first love? Well, you know, when you first get together with the one that you love, you just can't get enough of each other, can you? You can't spend enough time together, you can't do enough together, just everything together is wonderful and special and somehow it casts a certain glow over the mundane activities that you do. It's a beautiful thing. It changes the way that you see the world. When you're first in love, you can't learn enough about the other person. You want to know what makes them tick. You want to know what they like and what they don't like. You want to hear it all, however small the detail or however ordinary it might be. You talk, you listen, you laugh, you do dumb things together, you do everything together. Your beloved's opinion matters more than that of anybody else in the world. You would do almost anything to please him or her. That's first love. And you know, 
all of us have either experienced or seen it. But first love, by its very nature, is that, isn't it? It's first love. So what happens to love over time? And there are people sitting here who can answer that question. Old married couples know that first love, that love changes. That doesn't mean that love dies. It doesn't mean that love is somehow less. But love changes over time. Love becomes deeper. It becomes richer. It gets all sorts of interesting little imperfections that add to its beauty. But wise married couples also know that over time you need to work at your relationship, you need to invest in that or all those things that were first a delight of first love can gradually fade away and lose their spark. Wise couples know that it is important to intentionally spend time feeding, building, refreshing, renewing that first love. And so, you know, there are plenty of examples of that. People go out on date nights even when they've got small children. After all, what are grandparents for? People spend time together, and sometimes they could be doing really ordinary stuff. It might be as simple as, you know, chatting over the dishes. It might be working in the garden together. It might be just going for a walk with the dog or whatever it might be. But you spend time talking, listening, understanding what's important to the other person. You do things together that you both love. Or sometimes even things that you're not quite so sure that you love as much as the other person you do with them because you know that that pleases them and you want to please them. And so these things build the fires of the relationship. They renew, they refresh, they remind. First love, a special thing. And whilst, yes, love changes with time, it's certainly God's intention, I believe, that both in our human relationships and in our relationship with him, that that first love is never lost, that it's always there waiting to be reawakened, to well up within us and to remind us of the beautiful thing that we have in that relationship. And Jesus says to this church that was doing so wonderfully well, you have lost your first love. The love is gone. So what are we going to do? How are we going to, there's the letter C, how are we going to cultivate How are we going to cultivate that intimacy? How are we going to bring back that first love? Well, it's never a bad idea to know what you're talking about, so I had a look online at the Oxford Dictionary. To cultivate is to prepare and use land for crops or gardening, or to acquire or develop a quality or a skill. So preparing land so that stuff can grow, it can be fruitful, or to acquire or develop a skill. And Jesus actually has some tips for us. He doesn't use the word cultivate here, but he gives some instructions to the church and to us as to how to refresh, how to fire up that first love. Uh, And the first of those is to remember. Remember. Older Christians, those of us who've been around it for a while now, think back. Remember how it was Take a moment. How did you come to faith? How did God work in your life? How did he move? How did he touch you? How did he change you? When you were a young Christian, what crazy things did you do for God? I reckon we did some pretty, in retrospect, cringeful things back in youth group days, but we did them because we loved God and we were excited 
and we were sometimes a little bit less than wise, but nonetheless we did them out of enthusiasm and passion. How did you express your passion for him when you first came to him? What was it that really enabled you to tell him, to express to him how you felt? Was it worship? Was it serving him in some way? What did you get up to in terms of sharing the good news with others? Because you know when it's inside of you and it's exciting and new and it's changed you, it just bubbles out of you and you can't help talking about it. And where did that go? So look back. Over the past couple of weeks, I've really enjoyed looking back and remembering. I wish that I did this more often. I'll try and remember to remember. It's been great to listen to some of the music that I listened to when I was a young Christian. God bless Spotify. It's amazing how much stuff from the 80s Christian music era is out there. It's been really good listening to that again. I've picked up a couple of books that I had back then that were significant to me and that taught me things that I still regard as foundational and had a bit of a flip through. I haven't read them in their entirety, but I've refreshed myself on a couple of those. I even managed to find a couple of podcasts of a couple of messages that I remember hearing back then and listen to them again now. And, and, and you know, that evoked in me an echo of that same response. Remember, remember how it was. Make the effort to actually look back and think about what God did in your life and remember how good he is, how good he has been, what he's been in your life. And you know, that's actually a pattern we see through Scripture, isn't it? If you read the books of the Bible, particularly if we go into the Psalms, the people of Israel are constantly being told to remember what God had done for them, how he saw them in their distress, how he brought them out of slavery, how even when they rebelled, he kept them safe, he led them into a promised land, he cleared out their enemies before them and gave them a land of milk and honey, etc., They were constantly asked to remember. Their religious calendar was full of rememberings of significant events in their collective life. And, you know, we get the opportunity to do that too as Christians, don't we? You know, once a month, that's how we do it, we have communion. When we have communion, we remember, not just as some dry intellectual thing, but we remember that hanging up on that cross, Jesus took our sins upon himself and set us free. And all of the dross all of the dirt, all of the useless junk in our lives was nailed to the cross with him and it's gone. It was gone then, it's gone now. It will be gone forever. And so as we take that communion meal, we're not just there to have a little sip together, but we're actually remembering. And that would be a good time to actually sit back and remember what God has done in cleansing us and setting us free. So first up, he says to the church, remember, remember what you were, And yes, see how far you have fallen, but remember, it's good advice. Secondly, he tells the church to repent. Good old-fashioned word, not one we hear very much outside of church circles, is it? So repent means to change your thinking, to change your mind. But it's a much deeper word than that, because it's not just some intellectual, oh yeah, that's right, I'm going to move on now. Because if you really change your mind, if your heart is really changed then your life will change also. Your actions will change. What you do will be qualitatively different to what it was. And as I thought about this, it seemed to me that the challenge here for so many of us, and in some ways I looked at a couple of elements of this for me as well, is has something or someone come between me and God? Has something or someone taken God's place, kind of 
pushing him off the top of the podium, the number one spot where he belongs. So that now, actually, if you look at the way that I think and behave, it would seem to suggest that something or somebody else is more important. A dangerous question, but a really searching and important question to ask is, Lord, is there anything in my life that has to go? Remember. Repent. And thirdly, repeat. He says, do again the the deeds that you did at first. And the order of this is important because it's in the remembering what he's done, the refreshing of that relationship, the repenting, changing the way that we think and the way that we are as God works in us, that we are then able to do again the things that we did when we first came to him. And the thing which is implied in this, although not made explicit, is we don't do these things because it's a duty. We're not mentally running through a checklist of must-dos and in some way kind of earning brownie points towards salvation because there's a sense in which the Ephesians were already doing that. They were doing great things, but they had lost that first love. We do these things because the love of God within us means that we, we yearn to please him. We long to do what is right. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, we can actually please him. We can live right. It's made possible. Repeat, do again the things that you did at first. And the thing for me over the past couple of weeks is that God said to me quite clearly, actually, your time with me has lost its place. And frankly, you know, it would often, I would often miss. I would kind of be third or fourth priority, and if it didn't quite happen, oh, well, that was too bad. God's gracious. Well, that's true, he is. But he said to me very clearly, it's time to put that first. Putting that first is a little disappointing in some ways when you're already getting up at 10 to 6 in the morning to go to the gym. But I said to him, okay, you wake me up and I'm in. 5.30, okay. <laughs> you asked. Yeah. So for me, that's been an important thing. That might or might not resonate with you. But as I said to God, you know, what do I need to do again? He reminded me of, how, of the hunger that I once had to spend time with him and in my own life of the importance of actually putting him first, first in my day and setting the compass for the day. I don't say that as a legalistic thing. Maybe it's for you, maybe it's not. Ask him what it is. So remember, repent, repeat. The word cultivate doesn't appear in this passage, but all of these are actually about cultivating our relationship with God. And I couldn't help but think as I reflected on this cultivating process of the parable of the sower, which perhaps if I was choosing a passage for this particular theme, I would have chosen. Maybe we did that in previous years, Barry. I'm not going to read that passage. Many of you will know it. It appears in three out of the four Gospels, so here's a hint. God thinks it's important that we hear this one. And you remember as the sower went out and he scattered the seed, there were all these different places that the seed landed. Some landed beside the road, and the, the soil there was hard. The explanation says that there was no understanding and that the seed was quickly snatched away. So that came to nothing. Some of the seed landed in rocky places and it sprouted up quickly, but there was no depth to the soil. And so very quickly, the plants wilted under pressure and died. Thirdly, some of the seed fell amongst thorns So it managed to get into the soil and it started to grow, but it was choked off 
by the cares of this world, the weeds, the thorns, the useless things. And so it came to nothing. And that's where the rubber hit the road for me. But some of the seed hit the good soil, the soil that had been cultivated. The good soil, the people who were represented by that, they heard the word. They understood the word. They put the word into practice with joy. And the outcome was they bore much fruit. The church at Ephesus was doing so many things right, but they had lost their first love. They'd actually lost the thing that should have fired it up and given it all reason for being. They'd lost their passion. And Jesus said, if you will cultivate that relationship, then you will bear much fruit. But he warned them, and there's a a really worrying warning here. He said, if you do not do these things, I will take away your lampstand. Okay, so he took away a lampstand, big deal. What does that mean? What is that image about? If we turn to the Old Testament, it is absolutely clear that in the temple, the lampstand with its light that never burned, sorry, which always burned, which never went out, the lampstand was symbolic of the presence of God. And so this church, which appears to the outside world to be doing so well, but Jesus He's diagnosed a problem with their heart. He says, repent, remember, repeat, change, or I'm going. I will take my presence away from you. But to the one that overcomes, he or she will eat of the fruit of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now, we don't have recorded in this passage what happened but I can tell you I've done a little bit of research. This was written late in the first century. A guy called Ignatius wrote a letter about the Ephesian church in the second century, and he wrote about what a vibrant, alive, exciting church that it was. So we have every hint that the people who heard this message acted upon it, cultivated that intimacy, and bore fruit. Sadly, by the third century, there was no church in Ephesus at all that we know of. So we see before us both of those possibilities held. So in conclusion, I'd like us to reflect for a minute, and it may be helpful to you, I'm going to go all Barry on you, to close your eyes. And in God, I'd like you to ask... Ask of him. Lord, how's my love life? How's our love life? Could it be, Lord Jesus, that I have lost my first love? Is there something that stands between you and me. Has something else taken your rightful place at the top of my life? Lord, are there things which are choking out my first love?
These are simple questions, but rarely are there simple answers. Sometimes it takes time to discern what God is saying. I'd like to suggest, if you have any sense that your first love is waning, if that's what God is showing you, that maybe it's not what it once was, that you actually book in a time for a checkup with Jesus. Make a time. Ask him to speak. Do it now, before it's too late. Do it now and enjoy that taste of paradise. Experience life in all its fullness.